Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. there i'm chris stashu i'm mike white and this is father malone <laughs> these deliveries are off there. the chain today <laughs> we are the hosts of dreams for sale a twilight zone 1985 podcast you know the only one that exists on this episode we're we're here we're at the end of season one it only took us more than two years it's not really our fault we only talk about one episode a month and there's 24 episodes but we're here now and we're talking about the final two segments, A Day in Beaumont and The Last Defender. So A Day in Beaumont and The Last Defender of Camelot both aired April 11th, 1986. A Day in Beaumont is directed by, once again, Philip DeGuerre. It is written by David Gerald, And it stars Victor Garber and Stacey Nelkin as a couple who sees an alien land. Or do they? Bum, bum, bum! <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what did you think of this episode? Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. I was <laughs> not a fan of this one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I pretty much saw every twist and turn before it was going to happen. I think it's supposed to be playing, because the, the special effects are just fucking awful, and I think it's supposed to be like playing on old 50 sci-fi tropes and just trying to throw everything in there. This felt a little body snatchers it felt a little uh you know them it was like a whole bunch of stuff all kind of thrown into a blender and we ended up with this thing and you know we talked last month about shadow play which was written by charles beaumont which was a loop episode and this is a loop episode too for no really good reason i didn't understand why things were the way they were i'm hoping you guys can explain them to me the twists didn't necessarily feel like they were earned uh in a few words i wasn't a fan you know for something written by david gerald who as a massive of the original series of star trek i mean he wrote the trouble with tribbles i mean that's a that's a that is considered to be a classic episode of the he wrote that episode when he was 22 and look that i mean that's a great episode of the show you know, I've looked at some of the other stuff he's worked on. He worked on Land of the Lost. He wrote The Martian Child. Uh, so 
he has a pedigree of good science fiction writing. This is not one of those things. Mm-hmm. Like you said, this is a ham-fisted 50s throwback attempt that is just a waste of time. But maybe Father Malone absolutely yeah. loved it. No, no. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, the thing is, I actually really wanted to like it. I mean, this cast is crazy with Victor Garber and uh, the always adorable Stacey Nelkin. <laughs> and... Uh, um, like, I didn't think the writing was all that terrible as far as a send-up of 50s B-movies and the the original Twilight Zone itself, but, like, the tone was so wildly off the mark. Like, they were, like, the music alone was playing everything for laughs. Like, if, if it could have, I don't know, had they taken it seriously? I don't know, that's maybe asking a lot. But it seems that if it had taken itself more seriously, then it could have been a frightening episode, even though, uh, I don't know. I, let me just say, I really wanted to like it, and I was massively disappointed, sort of beginning to end. Um, not just because the effects were so terrible, not just because the twist was seen from uh, a mile off, but it just felt squandered. Mm. It it really was. And and on top of everything else, you kind of mentioned it in the final, and, and you mentioned it in the last episode, Mike, that there's, you know, Charles Beaumont, that's the nod to him. But then there's nods to fucking Bradbury, and it came from outer space. And H.G. Wells and Orson Wells. Yeah. Like, it feels more of just, like, how much, like, old school stuff can we throw into this? I mean, there's even a town named after Richard Matheson. It's Ready Player One for Boomers. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is. And somehow, it's just as disappointing as Ready Player One, with less misogyny. What is... So, they're on the run from these aliens, if they... T- something, something, if they take a photo, they see their shadow, okay, that's kind of cool, yada yada, the whole town's being taken over by them. They get beamed up in their spaceship, people start to remove their heads, and their giant insect heads underneath, okay, whatever. What is this whole thing he actually... It's like a Philip K. Dick kind of twist, right? He actually is one of the insects, but he doesn't believe that he's one of the insects. Is that what I'm getting from this? It's that he was programmed to not be one. I don't... They're supposed to be like a sleeper cell that they're going to uh, start the invasion of Earth with, and they're training them to do it. Oh. But this one has been trained so well that he actually believes he's human. Okay. But then it (laughs) loops... Which sounds better coming out of my mouth than the episode we got. Yeah. But but then it loops, and I'm like, okay, well, what are we getting in the loop? Is there another guy who's been trained that well? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what a what a waste of a really amazing actor like Dirk Garber, right? <laughs> Truly, are you saying that seriously or not seriously? I love Victor Garber. He's a great character actor. Okay, I only know him really from Alias, and I think Alias is dog shit. <laughs> so, well, I mean, uh. Alias aside, like. I truly well, God, find Godspell, Victor Garber. I'm sure be- you saw Godspell. Oh yeah, that's true. Who hasn't? Yeah, and yeah, and uh, it, what's funny is I've been listening to the original soundtrack, the broadcast uh, Broadway performance of Sweeney Todd for like 20 years, and did not realize that he was the original Anthony. Wow. In that show, so yeah, um, I, I love Victor Garber. I I was shocked at uh, how ill served he was here. Also, I was shocked that they kept his not mid-80s perm when this is clearly supposed to be the 1950s. Right, yeah. Yeah, that that kind of threw me off. There, there's a movie 
sorry, I keep like going to other sources. Like last episode, I talked about Black Mirror. This one, there's a movie called Top of the Food Chain, also known as Invasion. And they send up 50s sci-fi films kind of like they're doing here, but they do it so much better. And if folks are interested in this as a concept, I would say check that out. It's hilarious. It's super dry. Like jokes are just kind of slid in there. And if you're not paying attention, you'll miss them. Really good stuff. And I kept thinking about that while I was watching this and I was just like, is this supposed to be funny over the top? Or is because it just feels like, like Garber's like over the top completely all the time. And I know maybe, again, he's kind of Kevin McCarthying it, but Kevin McCarthy wasn't over the top until the very end of Body Snatchers. He wasn't at 11 the entire time. Well, that's that's right. the thing about this episode, right, is that this episode segment is that it has to, like, get to that point in the span of 18 minutes. Yeah, true. <laughs> so you get, like, a, I mean, you're not wrong. It, it They do it over, like, the span of, like, a minute and a half. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, oh, their their pinkies are extended. That's the sign. Like, that's the sign that they're aliens. Like, <laughs> yeah. wow, guys, the the cheapest the cheapest option was not always the best option, but it is the option you went with. Uh, because uh, speaking ex- of cheap options, <laughs> my favorite part of the entire episode is they have escaped the aliens. He needs to get to a phone to talk to his doctor friend or, or the the editor of the newspaper, or whatever. They stop in the middle of the desert. There's a phone set up, <laughs> and they've taken. The, the sort of press on letters that you put on your mailbox and written telephone down the side. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, thank, thank God they pointed that out or I wouldn't know what device he's using here. Otherwise, the kids today, they wouldn't know what that was. Oh, true. Yeah. They, that, w- what a prescient choice they made <laughs> back in 86. <laughs> they, you know, they saw um, uh, Wall Street. They knew what was coming. Everybody's going to have those big, <laughs> clunky Michael Douglas cell phones. Totally. <laughs> the Michael Douglas phone. I think I should just, we should just call it that from now on. I'm so glad, Chris, that you explained the longer pinky thing, because I don't know how I missed that. I just kept seeing them like focus in on the hands, and I was like, what? Is there something on the hand? I was looking for like um, uh, an indicating mark or something. I didn't realize it was the pinkies. I guess I just wasn't paying attention. And the best thing about that is the best thing about that is that they that that is their obvious flaw, and they all like walk around with their arms folded, showing it <laughs> off. What what a crack infiltration team! Have you seen over there? And they point with their pinky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they're if you don't stir tea with your pinky out, that's true. <laughs> I usually sip. What it are you doing daintily. with your life? Uh, I think my favorite moment is when Stacy Nelkin takes her head off. I laughed out loud. Yeah. Speaking of that, like, how many unmaskings did we actually need? Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, an endless progression of them pulling at their foam rubber latex appliances. Yeah. It was like, okay, we get it. They're like, as soon as one of them did it and the others didn't scream in horror, I was like, okay, they're all insects. And then when they, again, and then they did it again. And oh, there's the three guys back there. They need to do it too. It's like, oh my God, really? (laughs) I wish they had cut to other parts of the ship where everyone is doing it. It's like uh, all the unmaskings in Mission Impossible 2. Just like, oh, we had this effect in the first one. We're going to do it a lot. A lot. Lord. I, I, I wish that this segment was better. I think we all wish that the segment was better because it has it has the ability to be good. And it, it I think its heart is in the right place, but I don't think it has anything to right. say. No. 
But hey, you get to see Stacy Nelkin take her head off, and there's a bug head underneath, so at least there's Ooh. that. Spooky scary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Let's talk about the final segment of season one, The Last Defender of Camelot. Once upon a time, there was a realm of myth and magic, a high, bright dream that shimmered briefly and then was gone, leaving only memories and one ageless, weary, slightly tarnished hero who proved at last that wisdom and valor go hand in hand on Earth, in Camelot, and in the Twilight Zone. So this segment is directed by Jeannot Swark. Swark? Swark. Swark. So it was close. Jeannot Swark. It is written, like we've mentioned, by George R.R. Martin. He actually adapted the short story of the same name by Roger Zelazny, which is also called The Last Defender of Camelot. And it's about, shockingly, The Last Defender of Camelot. But it has Richard Kiley in it, so... We spared no expense. It's got <laughs> one hell of a cast. I mean, Jenny Agriter, Norman yeah. Boyd, the kid, whoever he is. But, I mean, it's got a really good cast. It's got a solid pedigree. I mean, Zelazny is uh, uh, like one of the people that you hold up in the pantheon like if if we're doing um not ralph who's the martin's abc of uh science fiction authors he would definitely be the z spot so it's yeah it's uh really good as far as that goes i love jenny agater and anytime she's on screen is great but she's on screen way too briefly but richard kiley's on screen a lot so there's that i think i think everything is a little on screen briefly here. It feels like a two hour movie they crammed into 22 minutes. And uh, so, like you were saying, Mike, like I, it, it does have a good pedigree. I think the writing is good. I think all the performances are good. I think the direction with the, you know, the, <clears throat> the limitations of the visual effects, which are God awful, uh, like weigh it down. And, and speaking of the cast, like the group of punks that met as Richard Kiley at the beginning, it was Anthony LaPaglia. Don Stark, the fucking Laura Prepon's dad on the 70s show, and John Cameron Mitchell is the, uh, the, the kid, the, the, uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch actor. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, like a crazy amount of talent on screen, including Jenny Agater, who is so fucking fantastic in everything. And it just felt like really rushed and like the payoffs weren't great at all. I mean, I do want to say about this particular episode. It reminded me of a time, it seemed, uh, before deconstructionism took over everything. Like, this seemed like an interesting sort of take on the Arthurian legend um, at a time when people really weren't doing it. I think now everything has been deconstructed into the fucking ground. But, uh, like, that, too, is another element that I liked about the episode. It's just that it ends up kind of not... All those great things kind of add up to nothing in the end. I can't believe I didn't recognize John Cameron Mitchell. I even saw his name in the credits, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. John Cameron Mitchell's in this. That, that's nice. And then it just completely went out of my brain. The 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 kid that <laughs> was um, Tom, but is it Tom, right? The, the punk, whoever. I'm Tom, just like, yeah. yeah, very punk name. Um, I was like, okay, uh, just did not connect with him that that was John Cameron Mitchell. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. What'd you think, Chris? You know, I, I again, I think like both of y'all have said, and I will pretty much echo it completely. It is an episode segment that once again, it has a good idea. 
is a great idea. I mean, again, the deconstruction of these classical kind of folklore and myths, I'm all for it. I love it. I love kind of taking them and putting them in a new setting or new time period. I think that that's really smart. But then it doesn't do anything with it. It just it just it just tells the story straightforward. And I I think my issue with this segment is more of it doesn't feel like a Twilight Zone segment. It just feels like like you said, Mike, a movie, a, a actual like this is an entire concept. You could turn into a film, like a feature length presentation. And I kind of don't know why anyone hasn't. I mean, it, it has an interesting plot. It has an interesting story. It deviates from the short story, but at the same time, it, it does have something to say. And I think it has something to say about kind of, you know, age and, and longevity and stuff like that, but I don't think it does anything. And it, you know, it has, like you've said, Richard Kiley and all kinds of really talented actors. And you just kind of wonder why cast all these great actors if you're just not going to give them anything to do. Yeah. But what a fight, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, the the sets and stuff. I was just like, "Oh man, be careful! You don't want to knock over that huge granite rock that you're next to. You don't want to. I I don't want a reproduction of Stonehenge that looks like it's in danger of being knocked over by a dwarf. <laughs> that was meant to be feet, not inches. Okay, I was just doing it the way you wrote it on that cocktail napkin. <laughs> I Nigel mean that John, Stonehenge he's confused as Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> that the fact that Stonehenge looks better in Spinal Tap than it does in this is a testament to how fucking bad yeah. this looks. And I yeah, I mean a for effort, but yeah, come on, yeah, and yeah, I mean I would like to go back and read the story that this was based upon because I could see this being fleshed out and having a lot more stuff to it. I don't know if Martin took it and pared it down or if he tried to bolster it. You know, is this one of those things like the uh, the Devil's Alphabet where it was, you know, six paragraphs <laughs> that we turned into an episode? Or was this like a novelette or something where it was like, yeah, and then we get Tom's story and he and and uh, Sir Lancelot go off and they have adventure, then they have to come back and, oh, Merlin's actually still alive or whatever, but... Yeah, it could have been a lot more. This could have been, what was that one with uh, Patrick Stewart, like the kid from Camelot or whatever that was. Just like, okay, yeah, this is a pretty good movie, and they're kind of redoing some of the the Camelot stuff. But yeah, uh, th- this had those building blocks, but they just did do things with them. And look, this is the probably only opportunity I will ever get to talk about this particular person. So I'm going to take this tiny opportunity that we've been given to talk about George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> uh think he's wildly over me personally and i've i've seen this comparison of him being the american tolkien um whoever said that is token the fuck up because if you think george R. R. martin can hold a candle to J.R.R. tolkien you're smoking some long bottom leaf my dude because that is that is an unfair comparison he doesn't bring anything to this that the novel didn't already do the novelette didn't already so i know that might be an unpopular opinion and roast me on the internet if you want but George R. R. Martin, not a not a huge fan. I don't think there's really anything wrong with the script here other than overreaching. Like, uh, <clears throat> I do feel like if this had just been an episode of Lancelot reuniting with Morgan Le Fay for a conversation for 20 minutes, then it would have been pretty good. And I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more. But uh, instead, they decided that they were going to go for the whole, the whole the whole grand sweep of what it should have been. And uh I, uh, let me let, to connect it to J.R.R. Tolkien for one second. Uh, clearly, 
Peter Jackson must have seen this when he decided that the idea of wizards shooting lasers at each other is a silly idea and he didn't want to pursue it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was disappointed when we recently talked about Lord of the Rings that Saruman and Gandalf didn't shoot lasers at each other. (laughs) I mean, if that's not what I want from my fictional fantasy stories, I don't know what it is. I mean, it could clearly they could have done it better now, but look what they were doing then. Huh. Could have been as good as the Emperor with this force lightning. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good, in fact. <laughs> it was on par. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to besmirch George R. R. Martin because he has written some very popular books. He's done more popular things than I will ever do in my entire lifetime. Um, but again, you put your work out there. People are going to have a pity about it. Hey, if you so. write Night Flyers, you get a free pass from me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Whatever, bro. <laughs> if you write okay. Night Flyers, <laughs> that's what you're going with. Okay. Yes, that's what I'm going with. <laughs> that's fine. Hey, you know what? I can't tell if you're being serious or if you're joking. I'm completely so. joking. I would hope so, because Night Flyers is a fucking mess. But hey, you know what? It's George, It's made by George R. R. Martin, so we must adapt it because he's hot right now. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody tuned in. Nobody watched. It, it, Are we it, talking about the original movie or the television series? I'm talking about the original movie from, what, 97? Oh, okay. Was it that late? I don't think no, so. No, I think you're right. I think it was more... Oh, God. When was that? It was like Michael Prade was in that. Was Robin of Loxley. Yeah, yeah. 87. Yeah, and then they yeah, redid the really TV show, movie. what, like a couple of years ago, and it was not good. Yeah. yeah, I got about maybe four episodes into that, and I was like, yeah, that's enough. I mean, look, and, you know, Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones and what uh, what everyone, you know, uh, what everyone's opinion will vary on that show. Uh, yeah, no thing. <laughs> and this is, I mean, again, the short, the short novelette, I'm actually probably going to go and read it because I would like to see how good it is because undoubtedly the novelette must be pretty good i would because again yeah it's like it's like mike said at the top zelazny's fantastic Mm -hmm. you're not gonna do yourself a disservice in reading him exactly little uh little trivia for you zelazny wrote lord of light which is the um they were going to build a theme park of it and i can't remember if that was actual that they're going to build a theme park of it or if that's what they were claiming to do no i think they were going to build a theme park of it and i think it was creating a movie of lord of light which was what they actually did in iran to get the hostages out um that was the fake movie they was at Ar- argo oh argo that's yeah. funny so th- that was actually so you can see a little bit of uh lord of light stuff in that huh one of the few things I know about Zelazny. This podcast is both deriding and educational. <laughs> I didn't come here to learn anything. <laughs> <laughs> I only came to listen to these guys' terrible opinions on things that I love so I can get mad at them. <laughs> Welcome to the Chronicles from the Crypt podcast, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Goljack podcast, y'all. Oh, fuck. So that's the end of season one. Holy shit, oh, we're wow. here. Uh, yeah, boy, I still can't kind of believe it. It, It's, you know, again, it's 24 episodes. We only watch an episode a month, so that's two years of episodes. I am curious, starting with you, Father Malone, if you had a takeaway from this season, what has been your favorite segment from this season? Since we should probably do a little bit of a quick little wrap up to kind of put a little bow on this first season of the show. Yeah, I, uh, hands down, my favorite episode is, uh, wordplay. I think, uh, 
a smart, thoughtful, uh, prescient Twilight Zone episode that really felt like what a new 1980s version of the Twilight Zone ought to be. It felt uh, an echo of the original series while sort of standing on its own merits. And uh, it scares the shit out of me to this day. So that's my favorite segment. I can't even say the whole episode is good. That segment alone is worth the price of admission for this entire season. What about you, Mike? I hate to sound like a copycat, but yeah. I mean, that was the segment that I remembered from the original watch. I think the, the two that I most remembered were Wordplay and The Shadow Man. And yeah, but okay. I take it back. Three. The other one was uh, to see the Invisible Man. I'd say to see the Invisible Man still holds up, but I think wordplay is still the best segment of this entire first season. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Grandma. All right. I just really love. <laughs> I just really love that kid and his terrible narration. <laughs> I thought you might. Oh, I thought no. you might go there. Not me. Not to echo y'all because you guys have given a very good answer. Obviously, uh, I would. For me, I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go with Dealer's Choice. I mean, look, Dan Hedaya as the Devil is amazing. You have M.M. at Walsh, Garrett Morris, Morgan Freeman of all people. I think it 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 has that like '80s sensibility to it, and it's it's tongue in cheek enough. But there are stakes. It's also directed by Wes Craven, and I, it's a lot of fun. It is a genuinely fun segment of this, and and I'm I, I love it. But at the same time, I mean, wordplay is amazing. And so is Shatterday. Uh, you know, the opening salvos, as Father Malone likes to say, we're so strong. And then it's just like just a wet fart into the season. Just constant decline in quality. It's really disappointing. They did, they did end on a thud. But at least when you say, what was your favorite segment? I have to think about it because there are enough mm-hmm. that I, I feel, you know, confident in recommending this entire season. Yeah. We need more Eyes of Newton. We need more... Um, I guess maybe the the Uncle Devil show. Maybe we need more. I mean, it was oh, yeah, short. Definitely. It was short enough. Yeah, we need like shorter, punchier stuff that is going to feel like it's Twilight Zone. Because like with this one, a day in Beaumont. I mean, it could have been one of the. It could have paid more homage to. The classic stuff where it's like, here's a man trapped alone in a city and we don't know what's going on. In this one, there's no real question of what's going on. Okay, it's an alien invasion. The only real twist is, oh, he's actually part of it. And this happens all the time or whatever. Last Defender of Camelot, like you said, did not feel like a Twilight Zone segment. To your point, Mike, and I know Father Malone hates us bringing this up, but... The 2000 version of Twilight Zone did a ve- does a very good job of not showing its hand too early because that was always part of what made Twilight Zone great is there is a little bit of them withholding a little bit of the information so you can kind of get to know the situation and the narrative with the character as opposed to them just like looking at the camera and being like, I don't know if this is real or not. Like, OK, right. <laughs> All right. Fine. No, you don't know. I don't know. If you don't know, it's probably not real. Um, So, like, as much as I, I, you know, as much as we've derided other Twilight Zone reboots, um, this show could use a little bit of that. Because, again, these last two episodes are just, I'm not talking segments. These last two episodes completely just show their hands up front. They're just like, yep, there you go. Let me spoon feed it to you. 
Yeah. And like, we're not, we weren't stupid in 85 when people were watching it. And we're really not stupid now. You don't have to hold our hands. And if you think you need to, you, you just don't. You don't need to. Give us, give the audience something to chew on. Give them a little something to think about. Don't just, you know, like you said, hold their hand and tell them what they need to, what they need to understand at the go. Because it's, it's just, it's lazy story. And, you know, <clears throat> the, the episodes or, or segments that I responded to most favorably this season kind of eschewed the entire twist. Like, I know people remember the Twilight Zone for its twist endings, but like, the the best ones seem to not be predicated on that at all. Like, yeah, wordplay starts with the problem. Like, and I mean, it isn't clear immediately. It, but it it isn't like at the end. Oh, by the way, here's the twist. So, like, they don't need it. And the fact that they they're still kind of like trying to force it out there is is crazy to me. And it's a it's it's a bummer. It's a bummer. But hey, you know what? We have another season to look forward to. It's the only other season with Charles Aidman doing the narration, but it's only 10 episodes long. So excuse me, 11 episodes long. So we have a lot less to watch. And there seems to be also a lot less of three part episodes. There's only two three parters, which is a bummer because I think for me, the most exciting stuff we've watched have been these short little quick little quick segments because it's it. it puts the creators both director and writer in a box that they they can't really get out of so they have to figure out how to work within it and i really like that and i find that to be exciting but i don't think we're going to be getting a whole lot of that next season because there aren't very many short segments which is unfortunate yeah it's a drag considering dreams for sale is Uh one of those yeah and so is the uncle devil show and so is the little not little boy lost um children's zoo which is another great Uh segment Absolutely. And in each of those, like, you know, like if there's a twist, like, yeah, just give us an eight minute segment. And because that's the only thing you're trying to do is is pull the wool over our eyes for, you know, however many minutes. Like, don't belabor it and stretch something out just so we can have this twist that we've already seen from the opening frame. No, that's that's Chronicles from the Crypts. Uh, that's our purview. That's what we have to deal with. <laughs> is is that that's true? Yeah, twists twists that are so obvious. They're uh, you know you can see them from the first frame of. So until then, until the next time we talk about Twilight Zone, which will be us talking about the first episode of season two, another George R. R. Martin segment, the Once and Future King, and a saucer of loneliness. Until then, where can people find you, Mike? You can find me over at the Projection Booth Podcast, which is available at projectionboothpodcast.com. What about you, Father Malone? Uh, you can hear me over on Dark Destinations, my travel log to fictional towns. You can uh, hear that if you uh, go to fathermalone.com. And you can also hear me with Chris talking about Tales from the Crypt over on Chronicles. From- I do want to point out how insane it is to me that fathermalone.com was not taken. I know. Me too. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> right? I, my own name is taken as a URL. What? <laughs> but Whoa, Father wow. Malone, a fictional character's name is not taken. Wait. Please explain that shit to me. <laughs> You're saying that Father Malone's real name isn't Father Malone? First name Father, no, last, la- last name Malone? That's uh, uh, absolutely accurate. My name is Father Dot Malone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was actually Father Mal 1. Oh, that was just for a little while. I was trying something out. I, uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Christmas Claus. You can also find me on a couple other podcasts. Father Malone's mentioned it. Mike and I do a podcast about Rankin and Bass movies called Rankin on Bass. And we talk about Barney Miller on the life and times of Captain Barney Miller. I also do a podcast about movies called The Culture Cast. 
As always, big thanks to Roxy, Drive, and Neutron Dreams for the music. You can find this podcast at twilightzone85.com, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.